Hello, everybody, and welcome to the ICS Pulse Podcast or the Industrial Cybersecurity Pulse Podcast. I almost sang that intro for you, Tyler. Mm. Hello. Mm. ICS Pulse Podcast. I think we should create like a little scat bebop thing that we do at the beginning of this every time. Mm. I think it could be worthwhile. I think it would be. You're a musician. We could do it. I mean, I, mm. I can only sing a little bit, but it'd be mm. nice. Can we talk like about a... the podcast? Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm one of your hosts, Gary Cohen. I'm your other one of the hosts, Tyler Wall. Happy to have you back with us. Um, great, great podcast today. Uh, today, we are going to be talking to Steve Stone. He's the head of Zero Labs at Rubrik. A really interesting guy. Really talkative guy. Had a lot of great things to say. Uh, the crux of it is... His Zero Labs at Rubrik just put out a report or not too long ago called The Hard Truths of Data Security. Tons of great information on that. So we'll talk through some of that with him and how that's relevant to the manufacturing or ITOCS environment. But, you know, what's a little more important than all of that, too, is the... Question. I have a guess as to what that might be. Oh, please guess. Oh, no, I just think it's going to be a question for me. The question of the day. Uh, the question of the podcast, I should say. That's I what we need a song for. Like a mm. Mr. Rogers, it's the question of the day. Mm. Like a, yeah, like the NBC, need, the more you know thing. Yeah, I just need like a soundboard where I can push different buttons that make different noises. If we had a soundboard, I think, I mean, you guys write us and tell us, but I think we'd triple listenership immediately if we had a soundboard. Most likely. Yeah. Uh, the question of the day today is what is your favorite outdoor activity? Uh, what if I said I'm a shut in? I hate the outdoors and you know I hate the outdoors. I tell you to pick something. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I just said this to try to get you out of the house, Gary. Um, you know, I am, neither of these are going to be fun. Uh, I run a lot. I'm a runner. I mean, I'm not like, I run marathons, but I run pretty regularly. So I like doing that. It's a good, like, end of the day, clear out my brain kind of thing. Uh, and I, I uh, play a lot of baseball with my kids, especially my son. We do a lot of, like... Yeah, I coach his baseball team, so I spent a lot of time outdoors playing baseball. And I grew up playing baseball and love the sport, so that might be it for me. That mm. might be my favorite outdoor. By the way, on the baseball thing, we mentioned this. I think we did a like, what your which baseball stadiums have you been to once? Yeah, I, I was talking to this to somebody about this recently. Um, I love baseball. I've loved baseball since I was a kid. I worked in baseball for like ten years. I mean, it's part of me. But I am definitely not one of those people who's like, I like baseball, so everybody should like baseball. Whenever people come to me and say they don't like it, I get it. <laughs> I get why you don't like it. I do. Different strokes for different folks. Yeah, I mean, with baseball, like, I think the addition, I know the pitch timer is controversial. But oh, I like it. I was, it keeps the game moving, though. It does. You know, I do appreciate now knowing that, yeah, a baseball game is probably about two and a half, three hours instead of question mark. Now, granted, unless there's extra innings, that can go a while. There was one, I can't remember if it was a Sox game or if it was a, a White Sox game specifically, or a Cubs game. They went like into 14 innings, though. That See, that's when it gets a little excessive when we're talking about. Even yeah. that, though, they've done things to move it along, starting the runner on mm -hmm. second, and like people score mm -hmm. pretty quickly now, whereas... You know, there used to be you just keep playing innings until the until the you know the home team batted and somebody had a lead, uh, and then you know there'd be games that would go eighteen innings. It was like this is six hours of base. I mean, I like baseball and I don't want to watch a six hour baseball game. It's tough. Uh, 
Yeah, but I know when we've gone to games this year, like I've taken my kids to a bunch of games this year, and you know, you go get some food and you watch the game, and you do, and you look up and you're like, oh, it's the fifth inning already. I like that exactly. That's- yeah, so I mean, yeah, that that has helped make baseball more tolerable for me. I think <laughs> I don't actively seek out baseball games, but if someone's like, you want to go like to a baseball game, I'll be like, mm, sure. But I won't I won't actively seek out baseball. Well, we are pushing toward October here, so you're not gonna have to worry about it very much longer. Mm-hmm. Segway. I was gonna October say. is Cybersecurity Awareness Month. <laughs> um Excellent. Yeah. usually you're good at the segways, but every once in a while you you make an opening for me and I mm. try to, to to drive the truck through. Oh yeah. Uh, but anyway, October is in fact cybersecurity awareness month, uh, which is an exciting time for us. We are going to be doing some fun stuff at industrialcybersecuritypulse.com in the next month, over the month of October. Uh, We've mentioned this in the podcast before. Please check in in October. We have recorded a whole podcast series with a lot of uh, guests, previous guests from the podcast. We're asking them five quick questions. They're going to be 15 to 20 minute podcasts, kind of about the state of cybersecurity and industrial cybersecurity right now. Each person brings their individual expertise uh, it's a real. It was a really fun series. We also try to answer some of the uh, the hard hitting questions in the world, like what's your favorite cybersecurity movie or TV show? We got some great the, answers for that. Mm-hmm. By far Absolutely the most important make question. Make sure you're tuning in in October. Yes, that is by far what he just said is the most important question. So make sure you stay tuned until the end of those interviews so you can hear the answers. Because I don't see anything else that would help your job more than the answer to that very question. Then knowing what people think. And this is, we didn't ask, what do you think are the best? We were like, you it, you hated it. You loved it. It was goofy. It was fun. We got a range of answers on that question, which was, uh, which was kind of fun. We did. And so, yeah, make sure you're tuning in next month for, well, not even next month. Tune in Soon. next. Days next couple from of now. Days, yeah, days, literal days uh, for Cybersecurity Awareness Month. We'll have a special page for it. And go there, check out all of our great content, including our excellent and scrum diddly umptious podcasts on there. Right. And we'll also have all kinds of other stuff. There'll be articles and resources and stop by. You should stop by. Join us. Come on down. Speaking of who stopped by, today we had Steve Stone to stop by today. Oh, nice and, segue. Mm-hmm, another segue. We should yes. have a competition and figure out who had the best segues after each one of these. We should. We need to have a survey. Our our company does a lot of research. We need to have research on segues and who did the best segues. Um, but yeah, so we had Steve Stone on the podcast today. He was talking about uh, his company, Rubric, uh, released a study pretty recently called the state of data security, the hard truths, a fantastic st- uh, stat, a fantastic name. Um, yeah, it was, it had a bunch of great research in there. A couple studies um, I thought was interesting is just, you know, they had a section devoted to the average growth of security data during the year of 2022. I didn't mention that this was a year in review. It was a year in review of 2022. Um, you know, there was a total of 25% growth. Cloud saw 61% growth in uh, secured data SaaS uh, software as a service saw the biggest growth by far of 236%. And then on-premises uh, security or sorry, growth of secured data was 19%. You know, I think in the reality, we'd probably like to see that on-premises be a little higher in growth in the uh, upcoming years, just because as we've talked about many times before, yeah, the, the physical, physical security, not in the sense of bodyguards, uh, but in the sense of, you know, for your, uh, on-premises devices is is 
crucial and very important because of that whole ITOT connected nature, being able to jump over to the other side during a cyber attack. Especially when you're talking about the ITOTS side is you need to be able to make quick decisions. And so having your uh, your data at your fingertips on premises is not a bad way to go. Yeah, that was something that we've talked about this before, Tyler and I, but we have more data at our fingertips than we've ever had before. We are collecting more data. There is just so much out there right now. And there's a million questions related to that. What do we do with it? How do we use it? How do we make it actionable? But also, how do we secure it? Because we are collecting more data than we have ever collected before, as some of those stats, and, and Steve will talk through those in the podcast, point out. The other things that he talked about, there are a couple of things that I took notes on going through their report. Um, some of these surprising, some of them not. Ransomware is one of the biggest threats to our economy, and it's a universal problem. No company is immune. Um, the report found that on average, 99% of IT and security leaders were made aware of cyber attacks at their level uh, for an average of 52 times in 2022 or one attack per week. Uh, that seems like a lot. Cyber attacks are inevitable. They're going to happen. Uh, I think we all kind of have accepted that truth at this point. But according to this report, there's too many organizations that still aren't prepared. So some of the stats in there, 96% of leaders are concerned that their organizations will be unable to maintain business continuity if it experienced a cyber attack. Uh, more than one third of boards and C-suites have little to no confidence in their organization's ability to recover critical data. Those are some worrying trends. Like obviously the stats, we know that there are a lot of cyber attacks. We know that everybody is a target, whether you're a mom and pop shop or you know Google, there's a good chance that you're going to get hit. But there are, there is not a lot of confidence out there right now that companies are going to be able to handle it. And so even if you're a, a, a Google or, oh, I don't know, a colonial pipeline, can you handle the, the attack? Can you, can you have business continuity after that attack? But I mean, if you're a, a small to medium sized business, that attack might be the difference between your business running on Friday or shutting down. Yeah, it's it's a definitely a huge issue. And in that report, they even talk even more about just everybody is doing data security. But the reality is that it's just uneven. Everybody's doing different things. Um, there's no sort of established baseline of necessity, right? We, we talk a lot about, you know, different frameworks, and the necessity for you to just start somewhere, but there needs to be some sort of common ground level. And in this report, I mean, they said that 56% of organizations employ at least one zero trust initiative, 56% develop or review an incident response plan, 54% test backup and recovery options, 52% created created and read, uh, refined data recovery orchestration. But nobody's doing all of one thing. Everybody's doing something different. So it's just an uneven spread of what people are trying. And it's great that people are trying things, but there's they're just kind of throwing darts at a dartboard and there just needs to be some sort of level of understanding of um, where your organization needs to be uh, security wise. And that's actually something Steve says in the podcast. You'll hear it soon as we bring him in uh, because of the preponderance of attacks that are happening right now. That's right. I said preponderance. Mm. Uh, there are no simple answers. There just aren't. There is no one thing. If you do this one thing at your company, you will be protected from all sorts of attacks. Your data will be secure. It doesn't exist. So you've really got to have 
uh, a lot of tools in your toolkit to try to try to make this work. And, you know, everybody's trying to cobble together a strategy that works to help protect not only your systems, not only critical systems, not only the the OT side, but then all of this data, this avalanche of data that's coming at you. Uh, hmm. with, with that and Tyler's, hmm, let's go and bring in Steve Stone. What do you say, Tyler? Time for Steve? Let's bring in... It's he, his name is just so WWE, Steve Stone. So my issue with his name is it's I agree. Great name is uh, it, we're going to go back to baseball is Steve Stone is a is a former Cy Young award winning pitcher and has been a broadcaster here in the Chicago area for decades, first with the Cubs and now with the White Sox. So like when I think Steve Stone, I think of that. Now, I'm not one to talk because my name's Gary Cohen. And the Mets TV announcer's name is Gary Cohen. And we've been getting confused for each other for years and years and years. Um, actually, I'm probably getting confused for him more often than he's getting confused for me, if I'm really honest. But uh, but that's what I think of when I hear Steve Stone is like, oh, it's the White Sox announcer. This is not the White Sox announcer. It's not. Who is it? I'll tell you. Steve Stone is the head of Zero Labs at Rubrik, which is a new cybersecurity research team that Stone leads. Their purpose is to give voice to folks on the front lines of cybersecurity and provide organizations with the latest threat data from their security research initiatives. In addition to heading up Rubrik Zero Labs, Stone teaches cybersecurity topics at McHenry University and was the vice president of adversary operations at Mandiant for five years. Also worked at IBM for a little while, FireEye for a little while. Uh, before that, he was in the military. Uh, so he's an expert on critical infrastructure and ransomware. Lots and lots of interesting things. Also. Just just a, an interesting guy to talk to. So with that, let's go ahead and bring in Steve Stone, not the White Sox, Steve Stone. Hi there, Steve. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Really excited to dive into this. Yeah, we're looking forward to talking to you. You've got a, a, a very interesting background. I think you should have a lot to uh, a lot of good information for our audience here. Yeah, a lot of miles in the tires. So lots <laughs> of stuff we can dive into. Well, let's let's start with that. So can you tell us a little bit about your background, your experience in the field of, of cybersecurity, any overlap with industrial cybersecurity and critical infrastructure? Uh, we just like to get to know the people we're talking to a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So my career is is a little atypical, although, uh, you know, somewhat of my vintage, most of us got into cybersecurity via a second career or an alternative path. Um, you couldn't go to school for it at the time and all that. Um, so in that sense, my background is pretty typical for folks that came out of the government. Um, I started my career in the U.S. military, had nothing to do with cybersecurity. Um, I did nuclear security, actually was in charge of securing warheads, um, running nuclear convoys, that transitioned into running um, some SWAT teams and other um, kind of emergency response teams. Spent uh, a couple of years doing that. And then the rest of my career as a special agent with the Air Force Office of Special Investigations doing high-level criminal felony investigations, uh, espionage investigations, and where I spent the vast majority of my career was doing counterterrorism, um, primarily in special operations um, communities. And as strange as it sounds, that's actually how I got into cybersecurity. I was a badge and credentialed federal agent, even though I was in the military. And based on what I was doing for counterterrorism, I had a, a number of security clearances and I ended up being a case agent for several of the early, what we now know are Chinese government intrusions into the US military. I ended up being the case agent because I had the only two prerequisites, 
I was a badger credentialed federal agent and I had enough security clearances to get in the room. And so all of a sudden I had to become a cyber guy, had no training, no expertise, none. Couldn't have found someone farther away from it than me. Um, so I spent a few years, you know, my main job was deploying. I'd come back, I'd work these long-term cyber espionage cases and swore when I got out of the military, I would never, ever do cyber again. Um, joined the U.S. intelligence community as a government civilian, and I was immediately rebranded as a cyber intelligence expert. Um, I had never been an intelligence professional. I had very little cyber security expertise, but I had more than anybody else, which was more than zero. So I spent five years in the government um, doing cyber intelligence, really enjoyed it as much as I came into it, kicking and screaming, found out I really, really liked it. And I was at a neat spot where we owned both incident response for the environment we were in and also a very strategic cyber intelligence mission. So I got to be in several worlds, which was pretty rare. You're typically one or the other. I did that for five years, really, really liked it. Uh, our main job was really convincing senior decision makers, you know, being four-star generals, Congress people, senators, that this cyber thing was real and that it mattered. Um, that sounds silly now in 2023, but that was our biggest job. Um, after about five years, I joined the private sector and I've spent time um, between Mandiant, where I've spent most of my career, some time at IBM and now at Rubrik, um, in a range of roles, but all of them really being around how do you bring together threat intelligence and event response into a meaningful, pragmatic way to help organizations. So I've been kicking around the private sector for uh, somewhere between 10 and 15 years, been really lucky to be in lots of great organizations. And again, kind of not really being in one world or the other, kind of being this, this connective tissue or this seam between different pockets of cybersecurity. So it's been a pretty interesting ride. It's really interesting. We talked to a lot of ex-military people on this podcast, and I can't think of one that we've talked to that intended to go into cybersecurity or went into the military with the intention of being in cybersecurity. Yeah, I don't know of one. Uh, I think you can now. Uh, again, you know, 20 plus years ago, you couldn't. It just, it just wasn't even an option. So there's lots of folks that came out of other backgrounds. And it's been really neat to watch this space professionalize. And it's been neat to watch the young talent come in. They're so much further ahead than we are, or we were. They're so much better prepared. And, and it's just been a really neat maturity to see in this industry. So you mentioned earlier, gave me a great segue, your experience in counterterrorism. So how has that experience that you brought in or the expertise in counterterrorism and geopolitical conflicts influenced your approach to cyber defense, especially in the context of critical infrastructure? So that's a great question. I would say there's probably three things that it's really helped me immeasurably in. The first is uh, terrorism changed a lot in the time I was in it. I was doing terrorism work before and after 9-11. So the, the world literally changed underneath our feet. And so I got to watch, I hate to call it an industry, but a topic uh, and, and all the things that go with it change really rapidly and dramatically and got to see how organizations change and how that impacts other things and all of that. Uh, and I've seen that happen several times in cyber. So that was one of the best things that's ever happened to me was that. The second thing that I really learned in, in counterterrorism in particular is you've got to have a lot of tools in the toolkit. There's just, there's no simple answers. And I think cybersecurity in particular is very much the same way. You've got to learn to work across teams. You've got to learn to work internationally. You've got to speak different languages in many ways. Uh, there's all these things that you had to do 
in terrorism work that was really complicated and really complex and very dynamic. And I learned a lot of good behaviors in that that have ported over very, very well to cybersecurity. And then the last thing I think, and really particularly to the ICS space is um, when I was doing counterterrorism and then you know, when I started doing cyber intelligence in the US government, it was you know, really learning about operational missions. It, it, whatever you're doing, the operational mission has to go. It has to move forward. And you start having to really figure out what's the realities and what isn't. Um, there's some places you want to go in the world to find a terrorist and you can't because they're not the infrastructure. Or there's things you want to do in cyber, but there's technical limitations. And learning how to think about those and anticipate those and react to those have really proven out in cybersecurity. And I would say particularly in the ICS and the OT space, as that has become more of the forefront and there's just real limitations and execution realities there. So let's kind of get into the emerging threat landscape here. Um, how has the threat landscape evolved concerning critical infrastructure attacks and ransomware over the past couple of years? And what are some of the most concerning trends you've seen so far? Great question. Tough question. So I think when we look at ICS in particular, what we see is there's, there's almost two different threat landscapes. There's the threat landscape that's really pointed at specifically ICS, OT, you know, the other kind of adjacent areas. And those threats aren't new. They aren't just showing up today. So they're maturing, they're learning, they're getting more proficient. And, and we're seeing that manifest. Um, those threat groups are also seeing how this works out in the real world. Um, it wasn't that long ago in my career when we would talk about ICS threats largely as hypothetical. It was a thing that you would worry about or you would talk about but you didn't have a proven track record. Those days are gone. There's proven ICS incidents and what those things mean, which the, the attackers are learning from just as much as we are. So I think that threat landscape is um, not as diverse. It's, it's not as diverse as a lot of other threat landscapes, but it's getting smarter. It's getting more mature. And I think it's, and I don't know this, this would be my assessment, but my assessment is a number of governments and high-level groups are putting more and more emphasis over time on that. So I think that's threat landscape one. I think threat landscape two is just everything else. Uh, you can't talk about the threat landscape and not talk about ransomware as an example or misinformation or wanting to make a political point. And I think a lot of ICS environments get caught up in that. Um, we, we love to think that ICS environments really are isolated and air-gapped and truly unique. But I think anyone that's worked those knows those, those have regular networks and, and architecture components like anything else does. And so therefore it's vulnerable to all the other threat landscape, which is just getting bigger and faster and, and more voluminous. So I think there's almost two distinct threat landscapes around ICS. And one thing that I think is really interesting is you said a few minutes ago when you were working in the government, you were spending time, it sounded ridiculous, but you were spending time, said you, that uh, convincing generals and higher ups that there was a problem with cybersecurity. You also mentioned a second ago that, you know, as of a few years ago, people in OTICS didn't really think there was a problem. That convincing people that there's an issue, I, I mean, probably great for you that you were uniquely suited to do that since you'd had a background, but is it sort of the same thing now where you're trying to convince people our cybersecurity practitioners are trying to convince people on the OT side that the threat is real, that people can get into your systems, that air gapping isn't really a, an effective technique anymore. 
I think it is still very much a part of what we have to do as cybersecurity professionals. And so there is universally an improved knowledge and awareness and acceptance. I mean, this is on the news all the time. You can't open a browser and go to a website and read news and not read about a cyber incident. And that wasn't the case. So there, the world has changed. But I think if anything, that's increased the need around advocacy and smart education because there's, there's two concurrent problems we didn't have back in the olden times. Uh, one problem is there's just a lot more people talking about this. That doesn't mean there's a lot more people that know what's actually going on. So it used to be you would struggle to be the, the voice in the room. Now you always have some of that, but it's also a prioritization of, hey, listen, that, that voice is incorrect or that voice is correct, but it's skewing weird or like, that's just crazy. That wasn't a problem we had really back in the day. So there's a lot of differentiation. The other thing is there's a lot more people that need to know a lot more about these topics to execute their day jobs. Um, I spent the early part of my career, you know, very, very senior decision makers. That still is a thing. Um, I don't think that will ever not be a thing. But now you've got the people that work underneath them and they're you just name an industry or a pocket and people now all need to know about this. A good example I would give is like um, K through 12, you know, actual like public schools. We're having to talk, we're spending a lot of time in our my current role at Rubric working with those organizations around ransomware. We were not talking about, you know, Podunk County Public High School and, and what cyber threats meant to them when we were communicating this to senators and Congress people and generals. That just was not on anyone's radar. It is now. Um, and in many ways, some of those events are really impactful. So if anything, there's much, much more education and advocacy than there's ever been. And I thought if you could have interviewed me 15, 20 years ago, I would have said at some point we would be over that hurdle and I would have been wrong. There's just hurdle after hurdle. It's just part of the job. It's just literally part of the job. That task never goes away. Yeah, yeah, it's always kind of just going to be kind of always there, you know, we're always going to be uh, looking forward to those next hurdles, looking forward to that next next steps forward. Um, are there any specific industries or sectors that are particularly vulnerable to cyber attacks and uh, what kind of makes them attractive targets? That's a tough question, a uh, broad question. So I'll probably give you a multi-part answer. I think um, in my experience, every industry is vulnerable. Like there's just if if you run an organization, whether it's a private company, for-profit, or a government organization, or a nonprofit, if you're doing something that is impactful and of interest to somebody else, which just means you're running a successful organization, you're vulnerable. You're a target. It is just that simple. There are that many threats. There's that much connectivity. That's just the world that we live in. So I, I would say on one hand, there's virtually no difference in vulnerability across industries. Now, I'm going to give kind of a, a conflicting answer to that. The second answer I would give is there are some industries that, from a technical perspective, have some unique aspects. I think ICS and OT are one. There's just different types of technology that are deployed, and there's nuance to that. Another example I would give is healthcare. Uh, healthcare is a really challenging environment to do effective incident response, threat response, all of that. It's just it's just tough because you're dealing with technology that's only built to do specific things and, and there's just unique aspects there. 
So that'd be the second part of the answer. And then the last part I would give is not all impacts are created equally. So organizations really have to assess, and, and this is a hard assessment to do, but what are the actual impacts if they can't do what they're supposed to do? And, and not just in the core topic, but in all the ripple effects. And so there are some industries that I think are more impactful. And again, I'll go back to ICS. You know, we can have uh, a, a grocery chain go out of, you know, business because of cyber attacks. That's not great. That's a big problem. But if we have the number three energy supplier to the Eastern Seaboard go out, those impacts have a life and death consequence. So I think that's another element I would give some, some variable aspects of my answer to. All right, I'm going to ask you a question that I know the answer to because I read your uh, the rubrics hard truths of data security report. But from the work that you guys do, do you feel that most organizations are prepared for the threat that's out there? And because I know what your answer is going to be, I think, uh, what can they do to get better prepared? Great question. This is a question I love. Uh, I think organizations are much more aware of what's going on than they've ever been, but I don't think we're to the right standard yet. I think a lot of organizations are surprised when they're in the middle of an event and, and can't do the things that they think they need to do. So, and I want to be clear here. I'm not saying that we haven't made massive strides. We have. As, as an industry in cybersecurity, it is absolutely true that there are positive changes. And, and we talk about some of those in our report. Um, and I think that's an important thing. It's easy to lose the lens on that, that we're heading the right direction. And we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, we don't want to lose that. A bunch of things really are working. These investments are paying off. Now, with that being said, there's still a ton of work to do. You know, in our report, we mentioned, you know, 99% of IT and security senior leaders, we're talking CIOs and CISOs, worked a cyber intrusion at their organization last year. And the average was 52 times. That's what I think is different. Is an organization better prepared and aware to deal with a cyber attack? Unequivocally, yes. Are they as prepared as they likely should be to deal with a attack that requires a senior leader attention every single week? Probably not. And that's, that's where I think a lot of this breaks down and where a lot of organizations are surprised. And I'll, I'll give an example from my time here at Rubrik. I've only been at Rubrik for about a year. I am relatively new to data backup and data recovery and data storage. That was never my experience. But what I found out working with really smart people at Rubrik, at other vendors, there's lots of really talented people solving these problems. There's some amazing technology, but we're not using it for all the things that we can do. Uh, we were actually just working with an organization doing a ransomware event where they had a really robust IR team. They had a threat intel team. They had all the technology but all of a sudden their environment became fully encrypted and those teams can't go to work. So they were ready, but now they, they hit a problem they didn't expect. And we actually worked with them to say, you have this, this data backup recovery solution, but you're only thinking about how to recover good data. Maybe we focus on how to recover bad data. Maybe we look at recovering what we think is compromised architecture into a secure environment. And now your IR team can go to work. Your threat research team can go to work. And it, it wasn't that the technology couldn't do that. It was that that just wasn't in the playbook. It, it just would never been used that way. And I see lots and lots of situations like that. And I think that's just such a good example of, are we better off? Absolutely. Are we where we need to be? Absolutely not. 
And, and we just got to keep both of those things in mind and not lose hope, but also not stop working. Yeah, this is a good time. You already kind of introduced it here, but uh, Rubrik did a study fairly recently called the State of Data Security and um, did, well, the State of Data Security, the Hard Truths. And you talk a bit in there about, um, you know, cloud, SaaS, software as a service, and on-premises uh, protection. Uh, what insights can you provide about the growth of data in different environments like those? And how, can, how are organizations adapting to this growth? That is absolutely the biggest thing we've talked out of our recent report. Of all the you know, discussions we've had as we put that material out there, uh, the data growth piece far and away has been um, the thing we've talked about the most. And right behind that was the volume of sensitive data. And so I think that there's really two big takeaways there. The first is uh, data visibility is really hard. You know, we talk a lot at Rubrik about where is that data on-premises slash enterprise in the cloud. Um, and frankly, even that's a, a misnomer. We talk about the cloud. We should be talking about clouds. Most organizations don't have a cloud. They have plural clouds. And then the third is SaaS, you know, that, that software as a service, you know, the app and all the data that goes into that. The first thing is getting visibility about where your data is and how you're using it across all three of those is really complicated, really tricky and a big struggle for a lot of organizations. And if you don't have good visibility, you can't make good decisions. Learned that years ago in the military, and I've never seen that proven wrong. The second thing that I think is really important out of that is that data is growing rapidly. So we talk in that recent report about a 25% year-over-year growth, and that's across all the environment types. So we went and measured basically all rubric clients we had over all of 2022, and their data holdings grow year over year by about 25%. Here's what that means. If you go out five years, that means that an organization's data is going to triple. We don't hear organizations thinking about that. How am I gonna secure three times the volume of data that I have today? Little less do I need to secure all that. The other element of that is while all elements of data storage are growing, they're growing at different rates. Like on-premises was the slowest grower at just under 20%. SaaS, is, SaaS data is growing at 12 times that rate at just under 150%. We aren't hearing a lot of organizations saying, I've got meteoric data growth inside of my SaaS applications. Can I secure it? Can I see it? Am I doing all the right things? And, and I think we're seeing that in the news. We're seeing that in breaches, the impacts of those things. So I think that's probably one of the top two most meaningful things that we ran across in our most recent report. So the report mentions that 93% of organizations encounter significant issues with their backup and recovery solutions. Can you elaborate on these issues and how they can be addressed? Yeah, another great question. Man, you guys you guys are just going right down the list of things I love to talk about. This Before has been my favorite podcast ever. I feel so validated yeah, best by one ever. questions we've asked. <laughs> I love it. Uh, except for the one that I do. That one's my favorite. This is my favorite, not me one. Got to throw that out there. Uh, before I answer the question about that, um, that 93% of, of organizations that encounter data backups, I just want to take one step back. One of the things we did in the most recent report, and one of the things that as, as a career practitioner, I was really, you know, frankly, pretty proud of and was really excited to see, we worked with three different data sets. Um, one was we worked with rubric telemetry. That report is the first time Rubrik has ever put out its own internal data. Like, how much can we see? What do we see? 
Um, that, that was an uncomfortable moment for Rubric. Um, it, it really frankly was, but we thought it was important because I think that data really means something. The second thing we did was we worked with an external research organization because we wanted to address our data bias. And so like this actual stat, I'll, I'll answer here in a minute, that came from the external research. Um, we, whenever you work with the organic data and your own telemetry, you have a real inherent data bias, which is your clients. Whatever choices your clients made that led to you is your data bias. And so by extension, a rubric client is investing in data. They're investing in data security. They're investing in architecture. That's a self-selecting crowd. So we worked with external research. We engaged 1,600 organizations across the world to see what do we not see. And, and then the third thing we did was we worked with four other cybersecurity vendors, private sector companies, that we thought had better data visibility in different areas than we did. And that gave us a more holistic, objective view of data security. So we worked with Mandiant, um, which is now part of Google Cloud. We worked with Palo Alto Networks Unit 42. Uh, we worked with a company called Permiso. Um, they're a fairly new organization that does incident response, particularly around identity in the cloud. And then we worked with Expel, uh, which is a managed defense and response organization. So that, that was something that we weren't doing 10 years ago. was really excited to see that. But to now answer your question, that external research. So basically, 93% of non-rubric clients that we engaged with ran across problems with their data backup. There's two meaningful takeaways there. The first is almost every one of those organizations had a data backup. Having a data backup solution does not mean your problem is solved. That's 93% of these organizations said, yeah, I'm paying for this, but it's not working the way I needed to. That's, that's a reality. We need to pay attention to that. The second thing was when we asked a follow-on question, which is what's not working? Um, some of it was malicious actors, like we weren't prepared for bad guys to run at it as much or as hard as they do. That's important. Some of it was they didn't have the expertise to actually handle that technical solution. Some was they didn't have enough data storage. They didn't have the right policies. Teams didn't work together. Um, as an example, we've seen more often than not, we've actually seen organizations conduct an incident response, remediate an attacker, and then literally reintroduce the attacker when they do data restoration. So there's, there's lots of reasons why all these organizations that have invested in data backup continue to have significant challenges. And it's not a one-off. It's, it's the vast majority. It's 93% of 1,600 organizations that we interacted with. So that, that tells us we have a long, long way to go when it comes to data security. Makes sense. I, before I ask this question, I do want to preface it by saying, if you don't compliment my question, I am going to take it personally. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> I love this question already. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, no, you mentioned just a second ago, the one of those factors is, you know, people didn't realize how hard malicious actors are going to go after the backup. There's a stat in that report that 70, there's a 73% success rate of malicious attempts to impact data backups. What are some of the key factors that contribute to that? Great. Another great question. I do love that question in all seriousness, because it's the kind of <laughs> intersection of all the things that we're talking about in that report. So I think there's, again, a couple of things that jump out. One is bad guys have realized data backup and data recovery is a meaningful option for organizations. There's just no way around that. We learned from attackers that we needed to get better at that, primarily through ransomware. Um, and now, you know, a lot of organizations made a bunch of really smart pivots. And now the attackers are pivoting. This is a dynamic space. And now data 
let's just say data security, data backup, data restoration are squarely in attacker crosshairs. I don't want to say just data because that's always been the, the key point. That's always been the end goal. But they've now realized that if they can affect this, they can the attackers can own a lot of decision making. The second piece of this is a lot of organizations are not thinking through what level of risk they may have from that, that offline data backup in this case. Can that be accessed? Is it secure? Is it immutable? And the more surface area that make things more convenient, the more accessible those things are to attackers. And I'm sure that rings true for a lot of folks on your podcast that are focused around ICS. This is the exact same discussion. The, the things that make ICS more secure inherently make it less effective or effective is not the right word, less efficient, less user-friendly. And, and we see a lot of those same parallels in what we do at Rubrik and data security. And I'll, I'll just give one small example. Um, we have to interact with organizations around their keys so we can get to the data to replicate it, secure it, and now make it immutable. But once we do that, that's it. We, we don't store those keys. We, we don't do any of that because that's a risk. And, and that's a problem. And we can't do the things that we want to do to secure it. We have a lot of clients saying, well, I would love you to keep a copy of my keys in case we lose them or we fire an employee and they take the keys with them. Like we've had clients tell us, like, we'll pay you to do this. It's not the right answer for us. It, it's a, it introduces a fundamental access path to data that we're trying to secure. And that's exactly what I'm sure ICS professionals deal with as well. Well, I want to be able to do this. That would be great. That would be great for you. That wouldn't be great for the other things. And it's a balance. It really, some things are negotiable and some things aren't. And I think that's what we hear out of that, you know, that 73% of attackers having some level of success affecting backups tells us, number one, attackers know it's there and it's meaningful. And number two, those backups are not as secure as they need to be because they're now in the hostile threat space. No way around that. So I think there's some really good lessons there. Yeah, you also mentioned, I mean, attackers are generally fairly smart people, but you mentioned you, you've had organizations that, you know, they get their data back and then they're basically putting the, the threat right back into their systems. I mean, that's a lot of times when people are paying the ransom, they get their quote unquote, if you can see my air quotes, their data back. But that doesn't mean that that data is clean. That doesn't mean that that data is safe. That doesn't mean that uh, that whoever attacked you isn't going right back into your system a year or six months later. Yep, absolutely. There's, man, there's so many threads I would love to pull on that. We could have a whole podcast on just that question. Right. But I would throw out a couple of things. One is um, attackers do come back. Absolutely. And, and I think we dealt with this a lot when I was at Mandiant. Uh, Mandiant puts out a number of these metrics in their M-Trends report. Palo Alto Networks Unit 42 does as well. Uh, I'm sure other vendors do. I'm just familiar with those two. And I've, I've seen that work. And, and those numbers people should pay attention to. There's a mentality of, oh, our organization survived our cyber attack. It was our turn in the shoot. And now we go back to life as normal. That's, that's bad thinking. And there's lots of great reporting on that from a number of really credible organizations. Um, so I think that's number one. I think number two is, the other thing that gets missed a lot is there's oftentimes more than one attacker, not unusual at all. And, and what different attackers are doing in an environment, there's just so much complexity there. And that puts a lot of requirements and needs on the defender. And then the last thing I would say is this really does come down to understanding 
attackers are not the same. They have different skill levels. They have different motivations. They want different things. The ways they're going about are different and the things they want to produce as impacts are different. And we've got to really pay attention to that to make good decisions. And then if we apply the right level of proactive, resilient methodologies, we can deal with that variability. We can't do that in the moment. The worst time to figure out, is this a ransomware group or a, a Chinese APT group or a Russian group trying to shut down ICS to support a physical invasion is not in the middle of a breach. Like it's way too late. Uh, you've got many other problems. So there's, there's a lot to pay attention to there. So in the report, um, there's a, a case that you guys use in there that's the Stone University case uh, where attackers used Log4j vulnerability to compromise the systems. Could you kind of walk us through that case and then tell us about how that reflects the broader trends in the cybersecurity and cyber attacks in 2022? I would love to. So that that's the first case study we've done at Rubric, working with one of our clients who we anonymized. Uh, we want to take that private confidentiality very seriously. Uh, we anonymized that case study, um, worked with the organization, because I think there's a lot of really good lessons there, both good and bad. Um, so the way that intrusion played out, and I think this is a fairly typical intrusion, which is part of why we chose that one as a case study, is you know we had a ransomware group that accessed their environment and was in their environment undetected for about five days. Um, so basically, they didn't just show up and then immediately deploy ransomware. They spent five days learning the environment. They set up a really strong foothold to actually prepare to watch the intrusion response. Um, they stole data out of the environment and they made sure they had multiple access points. And then on the fifth day, they deployed ransomware. So they spent real time understanding that. And, and I think that's lesson number one. We should never assume that once we realize there's an intrusion, that's when the intrusion starts. That's almost never the case. And again, I'll go back to, you know, Mandian talks about dwell time. They measure this, they report it. They've got something like 11 or 12 years of trends on that. So does Unit 42, so does CrowdStrike. Um, lots of great reporting on that. And they all agree, attackers are in environments before they're found, almost universally. So that's lesson number one. Um, ransomware gets deployed. And that was the interesting part to go back to your earlier question, Gary, about are organizations prepared? This organization was prepared for that moment. And they did really well. They were prepared to do a bunch of things very quickly to deal with the encryption event. The only problem was um, the attacker was paying attention. The attacker was watching them go through that. And now you've got a situation where how do you do effective response and recovery blind to the attacker uh, who is actively trying to look? And also, how do you make sure you don't lose your decision making? So we worked with that organization to do some things like Let's actually recover bad data into an offline environment where an attacker can't see it. Let's threat hunt against data backups where an attacker can't see it. Let's do a number of these things. Like this organization actually found what they believed was the first uh, main server that was compromised and the attacker had all their notes on it. They found that in their offline data backup. So they did a bunch of things really, really well there. What, what caught them off guard was the second ransom demand. Basically, as the attacker realized they, the victim was going to be able to deal with the encryption event via their data backups and recovery program, they basically at that point said, hey, oh, by the way, we stole eight gigs of data from your environment, and you either pay us now or we're going to leak it online. They were given a three-day window. So that's that, that double ransom, the extortion um, follow-on. And that 
the organization was not as well prepared for as they were for the encryption event. They they crushed the encryption event. They were surprised and put back on their heels around this, this data theft and extortion demand. And the problem they ran into first and foremost was, how do you verify the attacker actually did that? And do you care about what data may have been stolen as you're trying to recover an encrypted environment? That's a tough, complicated question that at that point they were like, wow, we're actually not prepared to answer that because we can't see the vast majority of our environment. We haven't gone through enough recovery yet. And so uh, we kind of pivoted again to the offline data backups. We did sensitive data discovery. We were actually able to use the offline data backups, which was not part of their response plan, even though the technology would do it and said, yeah, the attacker stole eight gigs of data. And inside of that are millions of, of sensitive data records. So that was the bad news. The good news was that only took a couple of hours and that organization now had the better part of three days to decide, were they going to pay that second ransom to not have their data leaked online? They chose to use that time to deal with notifications. They notified regulatory organizations, they notified the affected victims. They knew they were not gonna pay that ransom and they instead used that three days to do as much as possible. So when the data was leaked, everyone was as prepared as they could be, which we thought was a really uh, neat way to approach it and a really impactful way to approach it. And then their data was leaked online. That, that did happen to that victim, but everyone knew and they'd already worked through the process of how to get after that. And then at that point, they were well into staying on top of recovery and, and putting an end to the incident response phase and going into much more long-term remediation and what do they do now to prepare for the next intrusion. And, and we thought that that was really noteworthy and we wanted to include that in the case study as well. Really fascinating. Uh, out of respect for your time, I'm gonna make this our last question, but I do wanna say, Tyler and I text back and forth as we're talking through these podcasts and both of us were just like, we gotta have this guy on again. There's about 20 things you've said where I went, we could do a whole podcast on that. So. Uh, I'd love to come back. So you guys just let me know. Open <laughs> invite. Love to love to have you back on. So let, let's finish this up with the report. What are the key takeaways from this report that organizations should focus on to help uh, enhance their data security, their cybersecurity in the coming years? Yeah. So let me try to tailor that answer a little bit to your audience with the ICS side of the house, because I think there's a couple of things in in my experience with ICS, and I'm I am not an ICS um, expert but I've, I've done some ICS stuff over the years. Um, so I think there's some key takeaways to that audience. The first is to, to Tyler's earlier question around data growth. These ICS environments are designed to do a physical thing and to move data to enable that thing. ICS organizations have got to be thinking through how is their data growing? Where is it growing? I think ICS organizations will always be surprised how much ICS data is critical to what they do, and they also don't want to compromise, and is not necessarily in the secure ICS locations. So they, they've got to think through that. The second thing is, what is the critical data? One of the things we talk about in that report is, you know, how much sensitive data is in a typical environment? A typical environment, from a rubric perspective, has about 25 million sensitive data records inside of it. Now, what's important to each organization is up to a given organization, but that's way more sensitive data than any organization I've talked to thought they had in their environment. And so I think that probably means something even more so in the terms of ICS. 
because it's not just GDPR compliance. It's not just credit card numbers. What? Not all data is created equal, and we shouldn't secure all data to the same level. So the ICS team is really need to figure out what data do you need to run an ICS operation? And then separately, what data do you need to actually make ICS go? And those are not the same things. So they've got to really understand that. Once they understand that, they can make really smart decisions. Until they understand that, you're, you're shooting in the dark. And then the last thing I would say is really think through the technology approaches. There are some strong parallels between like what we do at Rubrik and how we secure our clients' data to how ICS organizations work. As an example, you know, you mentioned Log4j earlier in the question, Tyler. Uh, Log4j is something that like there are, we use third-party vendors for things that we do at Rubrik. We don't use those vendors when we deal with actually securing our clients' data. We handle that totally different. We code it different. We secure everything is different, just like ICS environments do with their technology. So we we have to think in different tracks all the time. How do we run Rubrik as a business? And then how do we do our core job of securing this data? And we do those things wildly differently. And we have to be equally smart at both sides of that. ICS organizations have to do the exact same things. And they've got to understand the different technologies. And, and you're you're always risk trading. That's just how operations run. That's how organizations run. So what are the non-negotiables? What are the must-dos? And what are the never-dos? And, and what are the impacts of those things? And so while we don't talk about in that report so much of like how we run rubric, there are some strong parallels there. Now, there are some things there about how we approach things that I think are really important for an ICS audience because you're effectively doing similar things just for different outcomes. All right, Steve, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Yeah, I've had a blast, gentlemen. So please, if there are follow-on questions, let me know. If there's things your audience wants to know, please let me know. We would we would love to engage on those or, or come back. We'd be happy to have you back on. Thanks so much, Steve. Thanks, gentlemen. All right, everybody. That was our conversation with Steve Stone of Rubric. Uh, really interesting conversation. A lot of great points there about data security and everything in between. I do want to point out that was the most validating podcast we've ever done. Every question we asked, he was like, great question. Terrific question, Tyler. And I was like, it's like a big warm hug. I feel like I'm doing my job well. I was going to say, it was probably the most accepted I've ever been. Like he was just so happy to just be there and ask great questions and being told great question over and over again, but like, not like a great question, but like a great question. That was a great question. It's just so validating. I a wish lot of people say yeah. great question is like a tick of like, mm -hmm. I need to come up with some time to come up with my answer. Oh, that's an interesting question. And then they're trying to figure out what their mm -hmm. answer. He was every time like, that's a great question. That's exactly what I want to talk about. Great job. It I just feels, feel seen. Yeah, it feels like resume material, but I don't know how to add that. I don't know if I can add that. <laughs> Steve Stone liked everything we asked. It was great. Now, he was, I thought that was a really fun conversation. A lot of good stuff on there. I will tell you, full disclosure, we enjoyed this conversation. We had this conversation with Steve, uh, probably recorded it maybe, I don't know, a month ago, maybe longer yeah. than that. And generally for the Cybersecurity Awareness Month podcast, coming soon to ICS Pulse, 
uh, we were bringing back some of our favorite guests from the last year. And Steve Stone is one of those guests, even though we're not releasing his podcast, his initial podcast until late September, because Tyler and I both went, boy, that was a great conversation. We got to have that guy back. Exactly. So, yeah, we we brought him back. He'll be he'll be dropping at some point here in September or sorry, September in October again. So you can hear him talk about his favorite um, cybersecurity movie and TV show. I can't even remember what his was. I bet he had a good one, though. I don't remember which one he said, though. Don't give uh, it away now. You got to listen. You have no, to listen. I don't, I don't remember either, but yeah. I think it, it was definitely a good one. It'd probably be better for us to say that we're strategically withholding this information than both of us admitting that neither of us have a memory. <laughs> Here's the thing. I can guarantee you that it was a great question, though. So A great answer. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But generally, Tyler and I are goldfish. We remember nothing. No. Um, but the one of the things that that he said, I mean, he said a lot of really great stuff in that conversation. But we talk about this so often about how do you communicate with the powers that be about the the need for cybersecurity, the need for a budget, the need for it to be a, a, a um, create this culture of cybersecurity throughout a whole organization, and so. You know, this idea that and this came out of the 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 report, the hard truths of data security, that organizations really need to double down on resilience right now. But this this quote of cyber resilience is business resilience, right? Like organizations need to understand the gravity and impact of these cyber incidents. Um, but things like lack of preparation, a misalignment between IT and your security team, uh, is insufficient backups and recovery solutions. All of these things leave you exposed and unprepared when we'll just call it the inevitable cyber attack hits. Um, you know, according to that report, 96% of leaders are concerned that their organizations will be unable to maintain business continuity if they experience a cyber attack in 2023. That is business resilience. Yes, it's cybersecurity resilience, but like if you don't do the cybersecurity things well, your business is going to feel the pain of it. Yeah. And a lot of that also comes down to just the importance of not only obviously communication between the IT and OT side, but communication between your security team and the C-suite and your executives or the board or whomever you report to uh, for requests in this case about, you know, beefing up cybersecurity. But even more important than that is nominating a team member uh, or hiring someone out, whoever, however you go about it, that can put it in the layman's terms for your C-suite because chances are they aren't going to understand what you're saying and they'll need it watered down for them with the exception of maybe like your CTO, your CISO. Um, they're the team, the, the C-suite team or board of executives is going to need somebody there to help uh, translate the issues and put it into terms that they'll understand and help them understand the impending doom, for lack of a better phrase, of having poor cyber practices in their uh in their environments and you know plants and businesses and organizations especially in OTICS i mean it could be something as simple and base as hey look look at what happened to colonial they were hit on the it side they shut down their ot they shut down the pipeline i guarantee you every c suite and every board knows how much it costs if they shut down the production lines so yeah, there yeah, you go and you look at i mean you look at what happened with toyota um one of their suppliers of cup holders got hit by a cyber attack. And so Toyota had to shut down their entire plants for, and they lost 300 to $400 million on this 
all because they couldn't get their cup holders for their cars. So it just, you just need security. I mean, there's no other way around it. And you need to be able to communicate that to your, to your board. And and to bring it around to what we do here. I mean, it's, if, if you're in ICS or OT and you feel like we're fine, we're air gap, nobody cares about us. I mean, that has been proven dramatically wrong over the last few years. As Steve said, that ICS threat has gone from hypothetical to very real. It is maturing. We know that these are uh, segments of the industry that can be hit, that can be attacked, that can be ransomware. Um, as he mentioned, ICS, OT, especially healthcare, these unique environments where there's some nuance there. You need to have a little bit of knowledge of what's going on in those sort of ITS, OC, OT um you know, machines that are running, but, you know, you need to know something maybe about HMIs and SCADA systems and, but, but boy, you can get in there now. So yeah, very, yeah. very important to secure those. Systems. And you do have to remember too, if you're saying like, we're fine, it implies that there's an end to cybersecurity. Remember, you should be thinking about cybersecurity as an ongoing, uh, an ongoing, not thing, but it's like digital transformation and industry 4.0 in a sense that it's more of a philosophy than it is an actual, like, product for lack of a better term like an actual endpoint so rather than it being an endpoint it is just a checkpoint on your cybersecurity journey so you should always be looking for ways to improve uh it's that idea of kaizen you know continuous improvement yeah i don't have it i was trying to think of a good segue off of what you just said so i could go into the conclusion and i i feel like i've let down okay, you I've got me this. and all of our listeners i had no good segue there if you would also like to continuously improve you should check out our site I felt like that was too easy. I, I had that, but I thought it was too easy. So I didn't want to, I didn't want to go with the obvious one. Mm. Anyway, go ahead. Take the one. Yes. If you want to continuously improve, uh, you should visit icspulse.com or if you want to type of the whole thing, industrial cybersecuritypulse.com, where we host fantastic comment comments, a fantastic content from different cybersecurity practitioners and companies uh end users and things of that nature and they're great content for you to help do your jobs better you will also find the home of our podcast industrial cybersecurity pulse podcast um we drop uh we drop podcasts every other week with the exception of cybersecurity awareness month coming up here where we will be dropping a, a podcast two times a week uh and it will be on our cybersecurity awareness month homepage which you should go on every day for the rest of your life because Cybersecurity Awareness Month isn't a month, it's a lifestyle. Uh, if you want to talk to us, uh, you can contact me at twall at cfemedia.com or you can contact me at gcohen at cfemedia.com. And until next time, stay safe out there. I feel like you had nothing there. I threw it back to you and you were like, am I doing this? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Another strong conclusion. We're known for our segues and conclusions. Mm -hmm. Definitely uh, be ready for that Cybersecurity Awareness Month. Thank you so much for tuning in. And, and as Tyler said, I mean, for the love of God, stay safe out there. <laughs>